Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a special episode of the OI with Jamie Anstey. I'm joined this evening by Mr. Paul Hollingsworth. Thank you very much for taking the time this evening. Nice to be with you, my friend, and uh, thanks for inviting me on. It means a lot. No problem at all. Uh, James wanted to join us this evening. Uh, he's attending to a child. One question he wanted to ask you is, what what drives you uh, to do what you're doing? Like, What, what makes you... Uh, Wake up each morning and do what you do. Ah, uh, that's that's a good question. Um, it's probably like a multi-pronged question. I could answer it two or three different ways. Um, I think first and foremost, and I talked about this actually with my wife last night. I fundamentally believe in trying to make yourself better every single day. Now we could mean physical fitness by making yourself better every day. We could mean our manners, how we treat each other with respect, try to be better every single day. And I try to work on those things too. But when it comes to um, getting out of bed in the morning and uh, trying to be a good family man, trying some days better than others, uh, and trying to be good at my career, um, I take great pride when it comes to my work and my life and my work life and all that goes with it hmm. to try to get better every single day. And I can tell you when I don't succeed, I'm getting better every day. And I can tell you when I do succeed, getting better every day. And it's an enormous um, fuel for me. I take enormous pride in trying to improve. And I'm also blessed because while I don't think I'm God's gift of broadcasting, I know I've found a career that I'm at least decent at doing. So when you find something you're solid at doing and you find something you love to do, Every day is kind of a Saturday morning. Work's not that hard. And it's easy to find the fuel to make yourself get better every day. So I guess that's my my passion and drive is I, I take enormous pride in not allowing myself to be mediocre, always trying to be, trying to be better every day and trying to make up for lost time. Because if I'm being brutally honest and being hard on myself, there were periods in my life where I didn't try my hardest. There were periods in my life, periods in my life where I, wasted weeks and months and sometimes years. Those days are over and I'm at a stage in my life where I take a lot of pride in just going out there and giving it my best and trying to be a good guy every day. Some days I succeed, some days I don't. You couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I watch you each and every day on CTV and you get to go to golf courses and report people playing golf and I'm surprised you didn't bring your golf clubs at the interview last week. I know the, yeah. lady, on C, the lady on CTV Paul, where's your golf clubs? And I'm sitting at home, and my girlfriend's like, "I would have taken my golf clubs." Just yeah, I, I was, I was tempted, <clears throat> I was tempted <laughs> to do it, but it's a, but it's a fun. I mean, there's a day that I mean, there was a day there where you got to go and do a story, and you interview four or five people or three or four people, and you drive ten or fifteen kilometers around town, and you say to yourself halfway through the day, "Okay, today it's going to be a fun day. I'm going to make this story serious. I'm going to put all my professionalism into it and lean into it as the best I can." But have some fun with it at the same time. In hindsight, I probably should have brought my golf clubs. Yes, I'm not sure if the bosses at CTV would have would have liked that. Maybe maybe afterwards. But like like you yeah. said, you've got a job to do, and you could be at the rink. And it maybe sometimes hard to say. Well, maybe they're like, "Hey, come join us and play." You've, you've yeah. you are at your that is your job, play, workplace. You started in CTV in 1995, and you went to school at the King's College in Halifax. Just go back. I know it was 
it wasn't just yesterday. So just go back and, and let the, the viewers of the OI uh, just about your journey. Like how, how did your journey well, begin uh, way back in maybe the nineties or so? Well, everyone has a story and I'm proud of mine. Um, I went to St. Pat's high school in Halifax. <clears throat> I'm a good Halifax boy. I, uh, after St. Pat's, I went to St. Mary's university, got a bachelor of arts with a major in English. And while I was there, I wrote for the school newspaper, did a little bit of stuff for the school radio station, but for the most part, just newspaper. I covered um, men's soccer, women's volleyball, and did some features. And I was always a pretty solid writer. I could always turn a pretty good phrase on paper. And being an English major, I think lends evidence to that. I was always uh, engaged in those forms of liberal arts. Um, <clears throat> after... Um, Graduating from St. Mary's, I was accepted to the University of King's College. Uh, I got the into the one-year program. It's a, it's a bachelor degree in journalism, but you need to have a degree to get into it. Okay. So technically, it was my second degree, but you need a degree to get into that one. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I, I go there for a year. Uh, I did an internship at CHNS Radio in Halifax. I, um, if I'm being brutally honest, I wasn't very good when I graduated. My writing was pretty solid. I felt, I look back on some of the stuff I wrote uh, back in 1994 when I graduated, 90, 93, 94, thereabouts. And I think some of my stuff's okay. Some of my writing copy holds up pretty well. But my presentation, uh, my command, my, my presence on camera or in front of a microphone doing radio had a lot of work to do. I had a lot of maturing to do. So I couldn't get a job. I, I, I just wasn't good enough to get a job unless I get a job behind the scenes. So I called up CTV, which was called ATV in those days, and asked, could I come in and do my own internship? And I graduated, so I had two university degrees. I had graduated, I was unemployed, and I worked at CTV for free for four months. And I was there 40 hours, 50 hours a week for four months. And they sent me home in November after school, I graduated in, in May. And, uh, about a month later, they, they called me back and offered me a job as a teleprompter operator. And uh, I used to do the turn to teleprompter when Steve Murphy would read the news. I was the guy in the control room operating his teleprompter, printing off scripts, very much a bottom line entry level job. And, you know, it was, it was humbling because, again, I had a lot of education. I was in my mid-20s. I was ready to start this exciting new chapter. And I started at the lowest rung of the ladder, unpaid gig. And then I got a paid gig, always behind the scenes. And within eight months, I was on air. We started the sports cast at CTV um, back in the 90, late 95, early 96. And I was always practicing behind the scenes, going into the voice booth, going to see my old boss, um, reading scripts off paper in front of him, trying to make myself better. And he gave me an opportunity to be a sportscaster. And that's how it started. And I did that all through the late 90s. And then uh, in 2000, TSN called me out of the blue. Nice phone call to get. They asked what I'd I would be say so. Yeah, it was, it was great. They asked what I'd be interested in doing some things for them part-time. And uh, that went on for a long time. I mean, we can talk more about the TSN stuff if you want, but I basically became a CTV Paul Hollingsworth slash TSN Paul Hollingsworth. And then over time, I went full-time to TSN. And then I've come back to CTV this last couple of years in a new, new chapter in my career. And I'm still doing some contracts up for TSN. I'm still a TSN part-timer no, during non-COVID times. But yeah, I just, uh, I, I was, uh, like I say, I'm repeating myself, but everyone has a story and, and I'm proud of mine. I, I, was, I wasn't very good. Um, I was a hard worker. 
I did have a good attitude and I was on my own. And I view my career as being a 10 foot hole in the ground and I was thrown into it and I had to crawl myself out. And that mindset's still there. I still, I still crawl out of it every day. I still believe like there's something to prove. I still believe that there's something chasing me or I, I'm not good enough or I need to prove myself to be better. And I think those are good habits to have. I think they're tremendous habits to have because if you commit yourself to that attitude that you always need to improve and not that you're not good enough in an insecure kind of way, but you're always capable of something better. It allows you to um, take ego out of your life. It allows you not to um, have a big view of yourself. It allows you to have a humble, honest approach to your work. And it allows you in hindsight, and I'm 51 years old now, I can look back. It allows you to look back at your career and say, okay, I've had a pretty good run here. I made some pretty good decisions and I feel pretty good about where I landed based on those decisions. So the whole package of it, I'm proud of it. It's been, it's been a fun run. Very good story. And as you were talking there, I'm in the same boat. Like I, I started this OI podcast about a couple months ago and I've, I've had some great interviews and it, it's been so, hum, it's been so humbling. And right now I'm helping the uh, Cole Harbor junior B Colts a volunteer position, but I've been driven by Mike Fines, who's over at St. Mary's. He's the head equipment manager and he started in junior A, you know, like Jim Bottomley and the exports were, were at the forum and he started at the junior A level and he, the equipment managers don't get paid. And I, I'm not sure if you know the gentleman by the name of Brian Dory, he, he was with the exports and breaker, big yes. breaker. Yes, yeah. sir. Yeah, yeah, that's his nickname. And uh, I yeah. talk to Mike Fines every every day and blessed to be on the uh, the offside crew. And James uh, has taken me on. I'm starting this podcast. And as you were talking there, I'm just like, wow, like you've got to start at a position like Cole Harbor Colts. Excuse me. The Cole Harbor Colts don't pay me. I love nope. giving I love giving back to the, the community of Cole Harbor. Um, did I ever imagine being with the Colts being from Sackville? I grew up in Sackville for 25 odd years always wanted to you know be part of that blazers organization but happy to be in cole harbor um we're still having practices we're very fortunate enough here in nova scotia uh practice practices for the colts resume tomorrow um and i'm i'm just in awe on on what you just said like you have to start at, at a position where you, you you might not be getting paid or you might be getting paid peanuts. And if you can find the motivation, if you can dig deep inside of yourself and find the motivation and achieve a goal, you, mm -hmm. you, you know, you spent four years or so at CTV, you, you know, you found, you wiggled through the mouse hole and you, and you found a way to, to get to where you are today. And, you know, you, you covered the two set two, 2016 world series with Steve Phillips. What a what a accomplishment! Like I, I'm a huge Cubs fan. I, I watched that entire entire series, and to see Paul Hollingsworth on there from Halifax, and now just hearing your story, I'm in complete awe. Regards to where you started in in the '90s, and we're going to talk about like the Voyagers in the '70s, and 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 hockey in the '80s, and all the good stuff that happened in the '90s. But I, I want to just talk about the CFL for just a short time last week it was announced that um halifax schooners whichever um organization 
that was uh, trying to put a bid in. I'm, I'm not really, not really sure about the financials or the, or the logistics logistics of things. But can you just maybe talk about that bid being canceled? I know the CFL is uncertain if it's going back. It yeah. some people some people say it's dead. Like I know there's there's people that have podcasts in the states and they call it you know state fair football and. I know you know the importance of CFL. It we've yeah. seen we've seen it here in Halifax. Dave Stalla. I, I loved watching Dave Stalla. Played for St. Mary's. Yeah. Played had a huge career in the CFL. And, and the CFL, in my opinion, is the place where the players in the AUS. I know Dalhousie doesn't have a football team, but SMU is mm-hmm. a massive football team, football organization. And uh, not to see CFL when SMU does come back and play, then there's no place for the guys to play afterwards. So just tell the the OI viewers um, what you could see happening down the road. And like I just said, the bid was canceled there last week. And I guess uh, who knows if it will resurface when the CFL does or hopefully hopefully it does come back. Well, I I think it will. Um, First of all, the people who disparage the CFL, who call it the State Fair Football League, Whatever else you think of the CFL, it's probably you know the second best professional football league in the world. I'm trying to think: is there another one besides the CFL and the NFL? I mean, I'm trying to think: is there no? I mean, it's it's a very good level of football. Star players from NCAA go on to play in the CFL, so it's fundamentally ridiculous to disparage the CFL football, the Canadian Football League. Uh, will it be back this year? I think it will be back this year. It'll be a truncated, smaller season. I think it will be back. Might be a seven, eight, nine, ten game season, but I think the CFL will be back this year. Um, there's also TSN has broadcast rights. It's in TSN's best interest to get the CFL up and running and give some content. So there's reasons to be optimistic. I mean, I'll, I'll leave those decisions for those experts, but I'm confident the CFL will be up and running. So the CFL, the city, they didn't cancel the the schooners. And here's what happened: Schooner Sports and Entertainment are the the ownership organizing group that wants to put a team in Halifax. They had secured a $20 million commitment from the Halifax Regional Municipality, money that would go to a stadium when built. And I wish I had it here to research, but I believe the parameters were that once the stadium was built and they had a viable, uh, feasible and viable business plan, then they'd be given $20 million to help them from the city. I don't think it was in advance of that. I apologize if I'm wrong, but I think that's how that, that deal went. Because... COVID happened and everything stopped. The bid and the pitch by Schooner Sports and Entertainment kind of went into a state of moratorium where nothing was happening. So the city said, we haven't heard anything from Schooner Sports and Entertainment in roughly a year. We have bigger fish to fry. We're in a bit of economic crisis here. We're in a pandemic. There's all kinds of stuff going on. So let's throw this out. We're not committed to this 20 million anymore. I got on the phone with Schooner Sports and Entertainment and they said, okay, we accept that. Now's not the time to build a stadium. We're in a pandemic, but our bid is still alive. We still want to bring a team here and they still believe that the league wants to expand here. I called up Dave Naylor, a friend of mine from, from TSN, CFL Insider Dave Naylor, and he said the same. He said, look, he said, it's not the time to be talking about building a stadium or expanding during the pandemic. But he said to me, once things are back to normal, and the world has resumed. And if the CFL gets back on a viable path, he's confident that those conversations will start up again. That doesn't mean it's a done deal to happen, nor does it mean it's a done deal not to happen. 
but COVID's messed up a lot of things. <clears throat> and it came along at a time right when the CFL was finally having some traction in Halifax. I believe they were closer than they ever were before. And a pandemic got in the way of it. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm confident that the conversation will happen again in the future. I can't speak to how successful it will be. But I do think the CFL can work in Halifax. I think Halifax is a city of counting the, the HRM population between four and 500,000 people. I think if you look at the uh, population growth, uh, average income, uh, commercial and residential construction rates, I'm being very um, broad brushed in my assessment here, but all the indicators of a city that has a lot going for them, going for it, Halifax checks a lot of those boxes. Well, those are the boxes you need to have checked if you want to have a professional team like the CFL and have a stadium. All of this, all of this to say, once the pandemic ends and we return to some state of normalcy and we get back on our feet two, three years from now, I'm just, I'm just guessing, I don't see any reason why the conversation can't be had again. I can't speak to the success of the outcome of that conversation, but I think all the reasons that Halifax was looking good for the CFL, those reasons could return someday in the not so distant future based on an expectation that the city's not gonna go in the tank and it's gonna rebound after the pandemic ends. No, I've, I've, I watched a gentleman in Saskatchewan and that's all there is in Saskatchewan. There's, there's, yeah. you know, there's a Saskatoon Blades, there's WHL hockey and everyone loves the riders and they strongly yeah. believe that, believe that, you know, CFL is not state fair football. I don't know if you, no. I don't know if you watched the Pat McAvee. I know, you know, the name, but he has a podcast yeah. and he called it state fair football and Rod Peterson, who I follow each and every day, he, he's like he's i'm not sure which word to describe his uh his displeasure but i strongly believe i i've talked to fred mcgillfrey and maybe he'll take a a pan am game bid uh, something like that that to bring the to bring the stadium in like what's gonna what's your opinion on what's it gonna take to bring the stadium in like what's is it gonna have to be a, a successful pan am games uh bid to maybe, maybe, like, maybe, and where, maybe and where, or, look and where does the stadium look, get for it too that was another I, I, have a, I have a couple of thoughts on that now listen i want i want to preface this by saying i have a passion for the subject of the cfl in halifax i have a passion for the subject of the stadium in halifax mm -hmm. i was born and raised in halifax my life's work connects to all the things that go into bringing a football team here so i i believe it's a really interesting conversation to be a part of i don't want the people watching thinking that i'm a fanboy <laughs> who's a journalist who reports well, on things that I want to see the outcome. I mean, I, when I report on it journalistically, I understand the side, like there are people who say, no, um, our tax dollars should not go to a CFL stadium. Okay. I report on that. I put it in my story without bias. I just, I throw it in there and I give those points of view. I am sometimes puzzled that um, there are people who are in favor of, spending tens of, million tens of millions of dollars to renovate the Halifax Forum, good idea, but they're not in favor of building a stadium. Hmm. Okay, um, I know people who are civic-minded people who are in favor of putting tens of millions of dollars to build a new art gallery. Terrific idea. I'm a big believer in growth in Halifax. I think it's exciting to see things grow. Those same people are not in favor of putting tens of millions of dollars in a stadium. It's not, so there's, there's a bit of yin and yang in this, in this conversation that I'm fascinated when it comes to following and me talking to all those people. And by the way, I respect all their opinions. Um, it's interesting to find, find the hook. 
What I find interesting about the stadium is, let's look at the example of the Halifax Metro Center. I grew up in Halifax. I was born in 1969. I've lived in what is the HRM my whole life. I live in Dartmouth now. I grew up in, grew up in the Halifax side. I remember Halifax in the 1970s. I remember downtown Halifax in the 1970s before historic properties was renovated. Just when Scotia Square was starting to get going, before the Halifax Metro Center was built, I remember it being built. I remember those days. And I remember what the infrastructure in downtown Halifax did to enhance downtown Halifax, to lead to further growth, to lead to more restaurants, to lead to more bars, to lead to more hotels. And some of the people who agree with that assessment are still against the stadium. I would submit to you that the people who have suggested that a stadium could, and I want to stress could, I'm not inserting my opinion in here, I'm just putting my picking up their active voice and inserting this in the conversation for the people who say a CFL stadium could spark that kind of growth in the Halifax region again, just like the Metro Center and other pieces of infrastructure did in the past. I think they're probably onto something because historically that argument holds water. But here's the problem. The people who are more fiscally conservative and want to make sure tax dollars go to education and healthcare, I totally respect that. I totally respect that. And by the way, I probably agree with this, that that's where our first priority should be. Where does that bring me in the argument? It comes to answering your question. What has to happen? I think somebody with money has to build a stadium. I think somebody who has deep pockets has to come in and build a stadium. As simple as that. Um, I, I, I don't have any exact thoughts on it, but I do know there have been benefactors in the past who come from rich corporations, rich families, and they, they invest a certain amount of money for it to happen. Maybe that happens someday. Um, maybe, you know, maybe a, a professional team owner of another franchise somewhere in Canada or North America, I'm just, I'm just speculating, you know, NBA, NFL, CFL, Major League Baseball, somebody like that wants to own a CFL team. Well, maybe for them, building a 60, 70, 80 million dollar modest stadium is not a big deal. I don't know. I don't know the answers to that. But I do know what has to happen. I think it takes a large chunk of private money and some creative investment and probably a consortium of owners with deep pockets to get it done. I don't think in today's climate, it's realistic to go to the government and ask them to build a hundred million dollar stadium at a time when we saw hospital shortages because of COVID-19 at a time where the unemployment rate was between 10 and 15% many days um, at the worst of the pandemic. And I don't have the number in front of me now, but it's still not great. At a time when the government's very stressed and overtaxed, overtaxed from a, um, an effort standpoint to put the proper amount of money into education and healthcare. I just don't think that's the time. And that's what I'm hearing from people as well. But that doesn't mean the argument can't live to fight another day. If you want my opinion, I think the CFL conversation in Halifax is probably on hold for a few years, several years, two or three years. But when it gets sparked back up, it's probably going to take a lot of passion, a lot of committed professionals like the ones we've seen with Schooner Sports and Entertainment and some deep pockets with private money to get it off the ground. Because in this climate, it's probably not realistic to see that happen. And again, and I want to stress this. Um, journalistically, as I cover the story, I totally respect that argument. I get it. I've lived here my whole life. I know about the hardship in this province. I know what people have uh, done to pull this city and this province up. I understand people's hesitance putting tax dollars into it. 
So private money is probably the best way to go in the future if it were to happen again. And I'm confident that the conversation will come up again. Is it safe to say the CFL is bigger than the Wanderers and the Hurricanes? Which we have basketball. Oh, I, here. I, oh, I, I think I think so. Yeah. I, I, I well, let's start with the Wanderers. Um, you know, let's start with the Hurricanes. Um, the, I think the CFL is bigger than the Hurricanes. Yes, I, I don't okay. think that's. If you think uh, the I, CFL I, would come if there was like the Hurricanes and the Wanderers and all that, people have speculated yeah. maybe um, the Wanderers and the the CFL schooners share the same facility yeah that could that could happen that's, I mean, a, that's a possibility that's been yeah that's from a friend and, and i'm friends with, i'm friends with Derek martin the man who yeah. runs the wanderers yeah. uh, is the cfl bigger than the wanderers um well no because the wanderers right now are here and the cfl's not so i guess you have to say the wanderers are bigger the wanderers have a pop-up stadium where they get five or six thousand people every game the cfl's not here so in this moment the wanderers are demonstrably bigger than the cfl because there is no cfl in halifax i mean and there's no cfl that was played um, I, I, I think if, if I could put my local analyst hat on, I think for people who are hopeful that the Wanderers grow to be bigger, better, stronger, and they're hopeful that the Wanderers maybe have a permanent stadium of their own, if those same people are hopeful that there's a CFL team coming here someday, well, then maybe that's the path they could pursue I don't know if it's workable. I haven't talked to Derek Martin about this when it comes to a partnership, so I don't know his thoughts. He may say, no, it's not a good idea. I have no idea. Um, but two teams are stronger than one. Two organizations are stronger than one. That's two right. uses for a stadium are stronger than one. Mm -hmm. um, and, and think about this. You mentioned uh, St. Mary's. So I'm not, I have no reason to believe St. Mary's would move any of, the, any of his athletic properties off the campus of St. Mary's. Well, they just built that, they just built that rank. And I think and exactly. Yeah. So, but what about the, what about the stadium? I mean, if you build a new football stadium and no, I'm only speculating, no space, really. It's, yeah. So, I mean, true. let's say you have a CFL team and a soccer team playing at a football stadium years from now, could St. Mary's football also be a tenant there? It's possible. It's at least possible. I, don't I think believe. I believe that yeah. the numbers. The numbers are there. I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I. I. And I look. And I will let the experts speak on those stats. But I know in other cities, university teams play at municipal stadiums. So I'm just. I mean, people need to. I guess this is a long way of saying your your point about the Wanderers and CFL. I have no reason to believe that the Wanderers and the CFL are going to ever have a partnership. But if they were to have a partnership it would probably make all of their arguments a little stronger to have a stadium someday. But even that conversation is probably on the back burner, given what's happening around the world right now. Do you think maybe two years ago when there was talks of the team going to Moncton, they could have played Moncton at first, could have had it off the ground. I know Rod Peterson mentioned last week, I believe he, he strongly believes if the team had started in Moncton two years ago, we'd already have a team. This, even if, even with no, who, who knew two years ago though, there was going to be COVID. Nobody knew. Yeah. No, nobody knew. I was part of the, uh, the U sport men's national championships in March, but I was, I was with St. Mary's and nobody knew until that night. Like nobody knew COVID yeah. was going to, going to do its thing until like mid March of last year. So is no, well, here's the thing. Do I, do I think it would have worked in Moncton? No, I, I don't think so. I'm okay. always, I'm always careful not to put my opinion into these things. I think as a yeah. reporter, I like to report on things, not being an, uh, not to be an okay. analyst on things. I don't think that would have been a good idea because you would have a team in the Maritimes right now who probably would have played one season and they'd be <laughs> iced like the rest of the league. I mean, imagine that. Imagine getting an expansion franchise 
that would have moved to Moncton to play in that stadium temporarily, to play one year in the CFL, and then this next CFL season gets scrapped. And that team is sitting in limbo in Moncton with an ownership group that wants to move to Halifax, but the stadium project in Halifax has died because of COVID-19. <laughs> it, it would have been a mess. So I would say that would be the, that would be the bold step they didn't take that they shouldn't have taken, and it probably worked out okay. I don't know. And by the way, I, I, I think Moncton's a great city. Uh, I, I am, if I don't wish them any ill will, I, if Moncton could be the team, if let's, let's say the CFL conversation becomes a Moncton conversation and a team goes there. Great. I'll, I'll go to the games in Moncton. It's fine. They have a beautiful stadium. So maybe that's the pathway forward. Maybe what's happening in Halifax and the lack of action is an opportunity for Moncton to kick the door open and get their team. Finally. I don't know the answers to that, but I think it's all another drop in the bucket when it comes a drop in the bucket when it comes to, how this whole thing is going to play forward. But it were, it's, I, will, I want to restate for people who maybe came in halfway through the conversation. I think the stadium and the CFL issue in the Maritimes is still an exciting conversation to have. It's still an interesting conversation to have. I don't think it's a dead issue. I think it's still a distinct possibility. But I think because of COVID-19, the pandemic, the economic issues, and how that's changed uh, the political and financial landscape all around us, I think the CFL conversation for the Maritimes has been pushed to the back burner for a variety of reasons. But the first and foremost reason is the CFL didn't even happen in 2020. We're not even sure it's going to happen in 2021. I think it will, but we don't know. So they need to get all that stuff straight before they talk about any expansion or stadium in the Maritimes. And that's even, even your idea about maybe a partnership with the Wanderers. I'll let the Wanderers speak for their stuff. It's a neat idea. It's an exciting topic to dig into. But the Wanderers played in the bubble in PEI last year. They're trying to get their league back together because of what's going on. So I think it's way too soon and too, too much too soon, too fast to have conversations about those things yet, other than we can keep our eye on it for when it pops up in the future and be ready to have more serious conversations about it. Yeah, and I'm, I wanted you on for this for this particular reason. It's fresh. It was told last week that you know uh, the bid to suspend it i wasn't really sure what was going on but now you just clarified things and everything yeah. make everything now makes total sense and it's it's been broadcasted all all over the all over canada and and people in saskatchewan vancouver there's the lions i've talked to people in ottawa and they they truly believe cfl will work in uh, halifax when when the timing is right and uh Right now, you yeah. can't you can't put money into the CFL team no. where with COVID nineteen because you know people Northward needs money. There's there's more. Yeah. There's it's not it's not the right time and there's no appetite for HRM council. Absolutely, um, yeah. Based on the conversation I had for them to put money back into this right now, and just looking at it responsibly and objectively, they're correct in taking that approach. I think the CFL conversation can go on hold for a few years until they get some other stuff sorted out around sorted out around town. But I know some HRM counselors who are stepping back from it, who are still excited by the idea, but it has to be an idea that works. They're there for good government. They're there to make responsible decisions. They can't throw money into a stadium and a CFL team for a shaky proposition. It has to be strong. And I respect that. And so they'll get there when they get there. And if it doesn't happen, and it, you know, as I sit here right now, given it's never happened, I guess I have to say the chances are it won't happen. But if it doesn't happen, at least they can say the people who want it, that they gave it the best shot possible, as opposed to passively taking a look at it. I know when I talked to Fred McGilvery, he had many great points. I won't go down the list of what he said, but the, the uh, community is strong. When when the bid does surface again, I'm I'm with you. I'm 
I strongly believe that the communities, Halifax, Dartmouth, any surrounding communities will be on board and uh, help the CFL come. I, I believe it deserves to be here. I know the fan base is here. People love the, the St. Mary's Huskies. And uh, as a CFL as a whole, I, I, it, it needs to come back. It's, it's, it's that firm for yeah. people at SPEW, you know, people, Mount A, look at Mount A in the last couple of years. They've become, they were, you know, not, not a lot of people knew about Mount Allison and Sackville, New, sure. Bru and Sackville, New Brunswick, but then they won championships. Yeah. And moving on to hockey, we, we love to talk about hockey here on the OI. We won't get, we won't get uh, caught up in football and any other sports, but just tell me about your experiences in the seventies. I know I've, I've, I talked to uh, Dale Huberly yesterday. You, you got the honor to be in his, uh, in his little museum there. And he, he, uh, he has quite the, uh, quite the nostalgia is what is the word you used. And just talk about the seventies, hockey in the seventies and uh, maybe some junior Canadians. I know uh, I'm, I'm only getting into the seventies and eighties now because uh, of Dale and uh, his little museum there. So, yeah. and that must've been a, a cool experience, you know, while you were on the, or while you were still working, getting to watch or see uh, Dale's uh, museum there. So just, just talk about the seventies and maybe early sixties uh, hockey in, in Halifax. I know it was unfortunate. We have, we've had conversations and uh, in the eighties hockey kind of died in the AHL at the Metro Center. And luckily enough, the Mooseheads came in 1994 and they've been going strong for almost 30 years now. So just talk about hockey as, as far as you can remember uh, at the forum or any other rinks around uh, HRM. Well, I grew up uh, just down the street from, um, just down the street from the Halifax Forum. And my dad was a sports journalist. So I had the great opportunity of seeing a lot of Nova Scotia Voyagers games. I was born in 1969. The Voyagers came in 72. They were here for 14 seasons. I went to Voyagers games at the Halifax Forum. I can tell you I went to games. I don't remember them. I remember being there in the crowd and you could smoke in the rink back in those days. So I remember being a little kid, look at all the cigarette smoke in the rink. I remember the noise and the jerseys. I, I remember going to the Voyagers Christmas parties that we were invited to because of my father. So I remember the Halifax Forum more anecdotally. Uh, the best the best example for this is like if you look at a picture on your mantle it might be a birthday party when you're four years old and you might say oh that was, i remember that that was a good time well you might not be remembering it you might be remembering the picture and the picture is the image in your mind you knew you were there you remember a vibe but you don't remember it so when i see pictures of Gilles lupien and uh, al mcneil and uh, pierre mondu and rod shot um and peter sullivan I, on the one hand, remember them playing for the Voyageurs, but on the other hand, I have no visual memory of them playing for the Voyageurs. I just remember being at the forum when they were there. I remember being there just, to, just as I can remember playing, in, just like I remember playing in the playground at Oxford School, but I can't remember any particular situation other than the fact that I played at the playground every day, but I can't take it back and describe any given day. So that's my vague memories of the form because I was so young. They moved when I was seven and eight years old. Seven, uh, I turned eight. I was eight years old when they moved to the Metro Center. I remember them very well at the Metro Center. The last seven years at the Metro Center, I went to a lot of games. And their last three years, I went to a ton of games. Um, I was a hardcore fan. Uh, I loved them. 
Um, I loved uh, Dan Mativier and Dan Balduke and Bill Riley, uh, Geek Harbino, Dan Dau, Bill Root, Francois James, Mark Holden, who became a friend of mine after later in life. Um, I remember and uh, John Brophy, the head coach, uh, 1983-84, um, Stan Henniger, Whitney Richardson, and Mike Jeffrey, three local guys, junior age guys from Halifax, all made the Voyagers. Um, two of them jumped up from the Halifax Lions junior A team and Mike Jeffrey jumped up from the Dalhousie the year before. I remember all of that. And um, as I remember it, um, it's just, it just, it's like magic dust sprinkling over me. It's happy memories. It's just, it's the, it's the greatest memories in the world. And I remember being so disappointed when the Voyagers moved to Sherbrooke after the 1984 season. And I thought it was a pretty cynical move because the V's, I wish I had it in front of me now. I sent it a Facebook post about a month ago. Yep. The V's had very good attendance their last three or four years. They didn't have very good attendance in the early days. I'm not sure they were marketed properly. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. Or it was, it was a different era and harder to market a team like that. I'm sure the, the gentlemen at the time, the people at the time tried their hardest to market them, but they didn't have great fan support, but they had a great following. And th there's a difference. Like they were a cultural icon here that was, you know, belonged to the province, but sometimes there would only be 1500 people at a game. But in 81, 82, 82, 83, 83, 84, I believe their second last season or their last season, they averaged 4,500 fans a game, which in the AHL was very good. So they moved to Sherbrooke to become the Sherbrooke, to become the Sherbrooke Canadians and won the Calder Cup the next year. Awesome. And we, yeah, we got the Nova Scotia Oilers for four years, I think, three or four years. Mm. They never caught on. Their attendance was back down in the 2000s. And I wasn't an Oilers fan. I wasn't an Oilers hater. I didn't dislike them, but I was so disappointed by the Voyagers leaving that I had this sort of this ambivalent, apathetic view of the Nova Scotia Oilers. But the Halifax Citadels came to town and they captured my imagination. And the Citadels, people forget this, the Citadels for the first three years, they drew rather well. I think they had the six or seven best attendance in the, in the AHL one year. And again, I encourage your listeners to check it, check out my math. There might've been the fifth best or the eighth best, but I think it was the fifth, sixth or seventh best attendance out of the 16 or 17 team league one or two years, they did a pretty good job. I think they averaged 4,100 fans. And even their last year, when we knew they were moving, I think they averaged 3,500 a game, which by AHL standards is not that bad. I loved the Citadels. I loved the Citadels almost as, almost as much as I loved the Voyagers, which is amazing to me. Um, but I just was, I was a fan of local sports. It was the best hockey available for us to watch. It was, I loved going downtown to the Metro Center to watch it. Um, it was time well spent. And those are, those are great memories for me. I, they formed me. They really did. I, I remember, I don't, I don't mind telling you this. I, I remember going to the Halifax Metro Center and um, daydreaming about being a sportscaster, watching the game, pretending I'm there covering the team, thinking if other people could do it, why can't I? Um, and that was, if I, you know, if I have a spark, what got me into broadcasting and sports broadcasting it was my love of baseball growing up and my love of, of the american hockey league growing up and my love of junior a hockey too i was a big halifax lions junior a fan uh, back in the late 80s late 70s early 1980s and people forget before the mooseheads came junior a hockey was amazing so the halifax lions played on tuesday nights the Cole harbor scotia colts played on wednesday nights mm -hmm. the Dartmouth arrows who played at the bulls arena played on thursday nights the kentville wildcats in kentville nova scotia played oh, on wow. thursday nights 
and the Amherst Ramblers for the most part played on Friday nights. And my father was president of the league. So he'd take me to a lot of the games. And I remember like the Halifax Lions was the team I cheered for, um, you know, um, Robbie Forbes, Dave King, Darren Sonye, uh, Chris Weeks, Patty Shellman, Harry Forbes, um, Craig McDonald, Mike Thompson, Craig Prawl, um, Robbie Richardson. I, I just, I'm just, I'm going cold here. There's more names. I think of Stan Henniger Jr., Jody Henniger, Brian McDonald, and another Brian McDonald, and, and so on and so on. Uh, Bill Brown. I mean, I could go on and on and on. These people were, these players, Mark Nash, were players that I, like as a young man, I admired them. I looked up to them. I cheered for them. I was like, I was a total fanboy. And again, all that fuel just made me say to myself, this is how I want to spend my life. I want to spend my life around rinks. I want, I want to be paid to do it. I want to spend my life around ballparks and stadiums. I want to be paid to do it. What do I have to do to achieve this? Who do I have to know? How hard do I have to work? And where do I have to be? And uh, I had those thoughts at such an early age. And you talked to my first, the first question you asked me about, about passion and everything. You can have all the passion you think you can have, but if you don't love something, you're not going to have any passion. And I love sports and I love being around sports and I love cheering for sports and it makes me happy. So I'm very lucky that that fuel from being a fan for all those teams was a foundational piece that allowed me to have my career someday. It took a lot of education, training and hard work and all kinds of crap that I went through to get there. But without that, those experiences, I wouldn't be sitting here right now talking to you. And life's about timing. And I, as I listen to you, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, maybe I should have pursue what I'm doing now a lot earlier but like I said I've only really known Mike for five or six years and he started with the the Spew Huskies uh, just a short couple of years ago and so I'm almost 40 years old and grateful now to you know get to interview a lot of great names and you sp spoke about Bill Wiley I got to talk to him last week and the uh, the offside uh, thing is open so many doors and you don't have to it's fine if you're 40 years old and you start late, you know, people get married when they're fifties and I've never let that bother me. Right. And, and hearing your, hearing your story tonight, it just adds to the fire and, and the motivation because uh, it, it doesn't matter how old, how old you are. If you, if all of us, and I strongly believe COVID is it, it's, it's done its thing on certain people. Like you can look at it however you want. Like you, you can be mopey every day because of COVID or you can be, you can still be happy and, I believe COVID has opened the doors to, you know, the offside thing. And I'm got, and people are home now. I've, I've gotten to talk to Steinberg a lot more. He's home and yourself and people are home a lot more just because they're not doing the regular thing and take advantage while you can, because once COVID's, yep. go, once COVID's gone and people are back to their normal routines before COVID, then nobody's going to be really available to have conversations. And I, I've, I've talked, I talked to Doug Grant. I've, I've talked to, many great names in the last uh, couple months and uh i've never been discouraged about almost being 40 and and now don't don't be this first of all don't, no, sir, don't be no. discouraged about being no 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 don't no, be discouraged no. first of all, anyone who anyone who suggests that you're being you're starting too late that's about that they're insecurity trying to hold you back and i don't think that's a fair conversation to have you're allowed to do whatever you want with your life whenever you want it at whatever age because the name of the game is pursuing you know that pursuit of happiness 
you can hang your head in the side of the road, do something you don't want to do for the rest of your life and be miserable, or you can try to do what you're doing now and have some joy. And I can hear from talking to you that you're, you're into it. You love it. It's a passion. Yep. You and, have, and, you have and, to, you have to, yeah, you got to have that energy. Cause you, you know, you yeah. just can't be mopey and talk to people just for the sake of. No. And, 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 to... and don't, and don't sell short the opportunity. I know how podcasts work. The more mm -hmm. people to listen, you start to make some money off of them. You, there are people <laughs> who, there are people who signed on for podcasts in North America who had zero viewers or listeners the first day they started zero none mm -hmm. and then they started to get five out of five ratings on the podcast rating and sometimes they have two million two million listeners and i'm not saying you're gonna have two million listeners i'm realistic but the point of the matter is you gotta start someplace i couldn't wait to talk to you today that's me that's i was, looking, awesome, forward to it. Yeah, that's I was looking forward to it all day long and i look forward to going back and listening to this uh yep. when the time comes yeah that's and then and i'll tell two friends and they'll tell two friends and so on and so on and so on and that's how you get started and then and you, you build up a brand, you build up an identity, you get known for being a good person around town with a passion for what you do. Nobody's going to say, oh, by the way, how old are you? They're not going to ask that question. They're going to say, where'd you get the Oilers hat? How long have you been doing this? And how'd you get so good so fast? That's what they're going to ask you. Now, there's been many great influences. Jason Poldall and I follow and a good friend of mine, Terry Ryan. He's, you know, Terry Ryan he played in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he, he's got his podcast and two, two young lads in Saskatchewan on the, on the squad cast. I've got to become friends with them because of Rod Peterson and Darren DuPont who we've had on offside and Darren just gave us uh, a, a little rundown on what, what we need to do. And we're, we're doing, we're doing our thing, man. We, we get to talk about the Leafs on Monday and Fridays. We had a little thing yeah. today and we're coming together and um, James is on board with the Cole Harbor Colts and it's, it's COVID's brought a lot of good, I believe to, to Nova Scotia. Like we never had the exposure. Nobody was ever at the rinks before COVID on their phone, on Facebook Live, broadcasting games. Now it's like a, a thing. Like it's you changed. Should... It's changed in the way we do things. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I am. Um, by the by the way, I should tell you, one of my son's best friends, Matt Justin, plays for Cole Harbor Colts. So they're. I know, oh, wow. I know, I know some connections on that team. That's a, that's a good, that's a good crew, man. That's a, that's a good group of people you're around. No, and Matt's an, uh, an amazing individual. He was one person uh, I spoke to one-on-one uh, -on -one there before we mm -hmm. shut, right? I think around the same week we shut down again. And uh, he could have played, he could have went back to high school. He could have Cavaliers, yeah. Cavaliers uh, folded the tents this year and they, uh, unfortunately the numbers they weren't able to have a team but i i got to talk to matt and he's like i didn't want to go back to high school i'm ready for junior b hockey and uh nice. we have we have jonathan boone and justin boone uh played junior a and you know jonathan boone played the mooseheads there in the 2000s played with kilway and in, in ottawa so we have an exceptional team um on the colts uh nurturing those uh those young kids and matt's uh, a treat to have in that room and um you got to be patient with the the new high school kids. So, yeah, absolutely. Anything else you'd like to add? I know uh, I, I wanted to get into the Citadels a little bit, and and I had uh, the opportunity to talk to Kevin Kaminsky, and hopefully down the road uh, I, I get to talk to Steiny um, on this um, on this show. Just tell me about Kevin Kaminsky, just how he was as a Citadel. Like, did you ever get to meet him? I, I um, tried to get a story out of him um, and I'm hoping to get a, maybe a story out of you, how he was as a Citadel, but. Uh, just, uh, well, just I can tell it, you, I mean, I, I, ne I never, I never, I did not meet him. 
I recall seeing him around downtown a lot. Back in those days, I was in my um, St. Mary's years uh, studying my Bachelor of Arts. And I had a job downtown, working downtown at um, one of the bars. And I was there three or four nights a week. So the Citadel players would come down quite a bit. So I recall seeing Kevin Kaminsky and uh, Greg Smith and um, Brent Severin and those guys, Jamie Baker one year, all around the community. I mean, a good bunch of guys that I know, that I know of. Trevor Steinberg is a very good friend of mine. Uh, I've got to know him over the last 20 years. And so my the only thing I'll say about Kevin Kaminsky is I can't say he reminds me of Brendan Gallagher exactly, but he's he's the little spark plug player that could. I mean, when he was in the game, he played with energy. You know, that old cliche, give it 110%. Well, he gave it 110%. He never stopped. He was that player that would go through a brick wall. Uh, all kinds of passion, all kinds of drive, lots of talent. You don't make it that far with the talent. And you could tell he's the kind of player that was adored by his teammates because of how he played. Very brave. Um, a very good hockey player who left a pretty big impact on the city because I think he was here for three full seasons. He was here for quite some time. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not on hockey DB at the moment, but he was he went went back and forth. I think. To, to come back and then he came yeah back. he's a, he played a bit he played one game from minnesota his very first year then he wound up properly the quebec nordiques and then the rest is history he played for the most part he played um played in the citadels and then he bounced around a little bit after that and you know after uh, basically you know he he he's he, the biggest imprint of his professional career i think was halifax i don't think that's incorrect to say but he made his mark in a couple of places so were your friends with Steinberg? I, I asked him this question. I said, Steiny, do you got any quite uh sorry, do you have any stories? And he's pretty quiet. I've I've asked Mike Fines as well. Like, do you have any uh Trevor Steinberg stories? Can you uh reveal a cool uh Steinberg story over your over the years? I just you know well, I just I just I as a coach, he's 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 purely entertaining. He's uh mm -hmm. Steiny is Steiny's a beauty. Um, if he were here, I would, uh, I would, I would say it in front of him. Like he's to watch him coach. Uh, first of all, he's a very funny guy in real life. Um, he's got a, he's, he's a character. Um, and to watch him coach is basically to watch a guy full of fire passion, um, on the bench who wants to win so bad, who just has this old school mentality and, I think it, he's a good coach. His players like him. Um, they like playing for him. He's a winner. He won a national championship, and he—he's the guy that um, he's entertaining to watch because they don't make—they don't make them like that anymore. They don't like he's—he's—he's he's, he's a throwback to a different time. And uh, by the way, he was drafted in the first round. Um, he was drafted in the first round um, in 1984 by the Quebec Nordiques. And he was, he could play, man. I mean, he had a great shot. I think injuries knocked him off and he played a few games. I think he played 79 games in the national hockey league, but for the most part, he was an AHLer. but he had a really interesting career, uh, played a bit in the NHL and uh, had a pretty good run as a, as a, as a head coach here in Halifax, by the way, I'm just dialing up Kevin Kaminsky's stats here. So he 139 NHL games. So he played one game for the Minnesota North stars in 88, 89. I was right about that. One game for the Nordiques in 89-90. And it was down at Halifax that year. And then, and so 89-90, he played 19 games with the Citadels. 90-91 played, played seven games with the Citadels. 
91, 92, 63 games with the Citadels, 92, 93, 79 games with the Citadels. So he was here for parts of four seasons, but he was here for two full seasons. Um, and I'd forgotten this. He actually played two full, a full season for the Washington Capitals in 95, 96. So he made it to the NHL full time. So he, I thought he was back and forth between Portland in those years, but he actually stuck with the he, NHL. He won a, he won a call the cup with the Portland, uh, yeah, the Portland, Portland Pirates. Yeah. Portland Pirates. Yeah, I, so yeah, it's, yeah, I hope you, I'll send you the link. Um, and that interview was, um, a couple of weeks ago, I believe. But interesting, interesting. He's an interesting character, man. He, no, no he he that. definitely is, and he got a cold clothing line out, and he's doing his thing. He's yeah. up in the Cambridge, I believe, mm-hmm. in in Saskatchewan. But just just tell me about the Mooseheads. We've talked about this, Paul, and you know it's unfortunate the AHL didn't work out, and it it was tough to see that that report there on Facebook where the Voyagers folded or left town and, and went to Sherbrooke and then 2000 they get 2000 fans or 3000 fans the next year. And, and they win yeah. the call, win the Calder cup. What was the ultimate reason that, uh, that the Voyagers left? And I actually, I know that the Oilers came in afterwards and um, could, could have the Voyagers been saved? Maybe if they stuck it out of the form, like, Oh, I, Oh, I, I think it was, I think it was more of a case of, Montreal wanted their farm team closer to the Sherbrooke, Quebec, which okay. is about an hour drive. I think that's basically what it was all about. Um, I will say this though. I didn't mind the Nova Scotia Oilers. I love the Citadels, but if you go into Hershey, Pennsylvania, the Hershey Bears have had several affiliations over the years, but they're always called the Hershey Bears. The Rochester Americans have been the Rochester Americans for all time, although I think they've always been Buffalo uh, for the most part anyway. Um, but I always wondered why they didn't keep the name the Voyageurs. Let Edmonton put their farm team here, but the Nova Scotia Voyageurs are still the name of the team. Is still the name of the team for, for branding Let, reasons. Yeah. I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so like when the, the Maine Mariners were the Philadelphia Flyers farm team, but the Boston Bruins went in there afterwards, and they're still called the Maine Mariners. So I never understood why they why they didn't keep the name the Voyageurs, but. You know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. It, it doesn't matter now. But they they left because Quebec, uh, Montreal wanted to put the team in the province of Quebec. I think that was basically it. And I think by operating the team in Halifax further away than Quebec, it was uh, it added a cost, an operational cost to running that team. You said earlier, and I saw a post on Facebook. So Al Hollingsworth was your father. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Still so alive. Yeah. Was he was he in the newspaper? Like you mentioned earlier. Oh yeah. So my dad, dad, yeah, my dad, um, so my dad was, um, he was a, so my dad was, he knew a bunch of things. He still is a bunch of things. Um, my dad's, (laughs) yeah, my dad's in the Nova Scotia sport hall of fame. He was inducted in 2005. Uh, I believe he's in three halls of fame. Um, one in Windsor and there's also a maritime sports hall of fame, which is a fledging, fledging hall of fame. Um, I think he's in three halls of fame, but he's in the big one, the Nova Scotia sport hall of fame. He was um, the editor, first of all, the sports editor of the Daily News, and then the managing editor of the Daily News. And he wrote a column every day in the paper, and he wrote a sports column every day in the paper. So he was a well-known columnist around town. He also coached junior A. He was president of the league after he was a coach. Uh, He coached baseball at a high level. He was a baseball administrator. He was just a man who wore many hats and very actively engaged in the community. if he were here, he'd be modest talking about his contributions. Uh, I will say this, um, 
he is a very good writer. His writing, I, I've often, the broadcasting part of it didn't come easy to me. I had to work at it. It just, it, I really struggled back in the old days, but the writing part was a strength I think I had to work on. I, I, I was blessed with somewhat of a strength where I could always kind of be a pretty good writer. Pretty good. I mean, I, I had to improve on that as well. I believe I was very lucky that my mother and father are both good writers. And my dad, if you look back and look at his old stuff, he could turn a phrase. He could pound off a column and make it a really interesting story. I don't have that in me. Um, as a journalist, my writing is something I think is okay. Like I say, I, I don't mind telling you, I think my writing is my strength, but it's also very processy. I'm not, I'm not a creative writer. I don't, I don't, I'm not flowery when I write. I kind of write in a straight line and get you through a story. Um, and I think it goes pretty well sometimes, but I won't take you on a big journey in my writing. That's not my style. My dad's, my dad's like that. He has his own little talent. And so his column back in the day was, was, um, was something that people read every day. And I grew up in the community where I was Al's son. And out of that, uh, he took me to all the sports events. I sat in the press box. Uh, I got to travel around the Maritimes, uh, to Montreal to watch Expos games, to Fenway Park to watch Red Sox games when I was a kid. So I got to see some things that in hindsight were nothing like the things my friends would see. Like I remember Junior A, um, the Halifax Lions Junior A team in 1982, the 82-83 season, I was in grade eight. And the Halifax Lions won the Junior A championship here, the big Coal Harbor in the final. And they advanced to the Atlantic Championship to play the Sherwood Parkdale Metros. And the first two games were at the Halifax Forum on the first weekend. And the next three games were going to be in Sherwood Parkdale the next weekend. And if necessary, the next two games will be back in Halifax the weekend after. So best of seven series. We were, uh, I was in grade eight and my dad I want to say he called the school. No, that's not true. I went home for lunch on a Friday and Halifax had won the first two games against Sherwood Parkdale the weekend before. And they were playing that night for game three in PEI, Saturday for game four, Sunday for game five. He came home at lunchtime. I was home for lunch and he said, get packed. We're going to PEI this afternoon because in those days he had to take the ferry. We had, we, he, I forget what time it was. We're going to catch the four o'clock ferry, whatever, whatever time the ferry was. And if we catch the four o'clock ferry, we can get to Charlottetown in time to watch the Halifax Lions play Sherwood Parkdale Metros at seven o'clock tonight. Wow. And I was, <laughs> he pulled me, he pulled me out of school. I mean, that was wow. like, there, there's, there's, there's my childhood. My childhood wasn't perfect. I, there were times I wish my childhood was happier. And there were times when I look back and I'm very lucky to have what I had. And that was one of those moments that, I mean, I just, I felt like a million bucks driving to PEI to watch junior A hockey. But I had those kind of moments all through my childhood. And again, those are foundational pieces for me. So when I went to, when I covered uh, uh, the Memorial Cup in 2000 at the Halifax Metro Center, I'm sitting up in the press box. And one of my friends from CTV, a guy I still work with, I got him a press pass. And so he came into the Memorial Cup with me and he sat up in the press box with me. He's like, man, you must be like, this must blow your mind. You get to sit up here. And I was like, I've been sitting up here since 1978 with my dad. Like, that's a fact. That was in the year 2000. And I'd been sitting up there for 22, 23 years with my father. I was in the press box at the Metro Center when I was, when I was in grade, 
grade five, grade four, grade five, no exaggeration, multiple times. I was probably in that damn press box 50 times by the time I graduated from high school. It sounds like you're in there more than Pat Conley. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I went to, he was there a lot. I mean, but I went to, um, I I covered baseball world series, 14 straight years. Like I've covered um, baseball and I'm not saying this to to name drop or to brag. I'm just telling you some experiences I've had. Mm -hmm. I've probably covered without an exaggeration, 200 major league baseball games in my life, maybe 250. So many that I've lost track. It's over 200, but let's say, let's say 225. Well, when I went to the 2004 World Series, when the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in, since 1918, that was my 20th time at Fenway Park. Wow. I had been there. Like, I had been there. I mean, my, my last two games were the, my you know, 20th, 18. I'd been there 18 times before. And that was my 19th and 20th time. I'd been there a lot. I mean, I, I'd been to over 100 Expos games in my lifetime. Um, when I went to Philadelphia to cover the World Series in 2008, I remember driving to Philadelphia in, in 1992 and 1993 to watch the Expos play in Philadelphia. So those experiences do prepare you because you all of a sudden you've been here before. I'm working now. I'm not a fan, but you, you know, I've been. I, I wasn't hanging around Major League Baseball stadiums, but I would go to six, seven, eight, ten games a year. Some some years, and that prepares you. It sort of makes you, you know, less in awe of it. And it helps prepare you when you start to chart your career. Doesn't mean I didn't have a lot to learn. It's had a hell of a lot to learn, but it gave me a level of experience just being there. Which World Series was your most favorite? I I can't imagine. Uh, there was the Boston Red Sox, yeah, and then 2016. Well, I'll, I'll, walk, I'll walk you through them. So I did. I did Sorry, 2000, ahead, 2004. Yeah. The Red Sox. The Red Sox beat the Cardinals in four games in 2004. Didn't like it. Um, it was neat to see the history, but it was a sweep. And I'm not a fan of either team. 2005, the White Sox beat the Astros. That was kind of cool because the White Sox hadn't won a World Series, I think, since 1917, I think it was. The Black Sox scandal of 1919, they lost. I believe they won in 1917. 2006, the Cardinals beat the Tigers. Wasn't a fan of either team. It was a five-game series. 2007, the Red Sox swept the Rockies. I think it was a sweep. I was there for that. 2008, Philadelphia beat Tampa Bay in five games. Eh. Uh, 2009, I think the Yankees beat the Phillies. Eh. 2010, uh, the Giants beat the Texas Rangers. That was a pretty good one. 2011, the Cardinals beat the Texas Rangers in seven games. That was an unbelievable World Series. So I'll, I'll say that's my probably my favorite one. And I was a huge Josh Hamilton fan, so I like Texas. Um, Texas was <clears throat> up three games to two and tied in the 10th inning. Josh Hamilton hit a home run in the 10th inning. <clears throat> I think it was a two-run home run. And so they were going to win the World Series in six games. The Cardinals came back to win the game with three runs in the bottom of the 10th inning, I think it was, to force game seven. When I go into the Texas Rangers locker room, their clubhouse, after game six, all the plastic was all lined up around the lockers because they were getting ready to cover the lockers for the champagne celebration. It was amazing. So we were in there minutes after they had disassembled all the plastic that was 
there to cover the room for the champagne because they thought they're going to win. So they took all the plastic and they rolled it up and they taped it about the lockers. And if you undid the tape, the plastic would have all fallen down and blocked the lockers off. So when you shake the champagne, you don't get the clothes wet. So it was just, uh, it was probably the best World Series I've been to. Um, 2012, I forget who 2012 was. Oh, that was the Giants again. Uh, I forget who the Giants beat. 2013 was the Red Sox beat the Cardinals. 2014, the Giants beat the Royals. Uh, 2015, the Royals beat the Mets. 2016, the Cubs beat the Indians. That was a very good World Series too. I guess my I'm a, my I'm a Cubs fan. Sorry to yeah my two yeah my two my I'm two favorites were yeah my two favorites probably were 2011. Even though I wanted Texas to win, watching the the Cardinals beat the Texas Rangers and 2016 watching the Cubs beat the Cleveland Indians, Cleveland Indians in seven games, both very good series. I, I hope the Cubs win again, but uh, I, I did live to get this. I did live to see the 2016 Cubs yeah. win. So I thought, I thought knows they'd when, win. I thought they'd win a bunch with that team. And that's a big surprise. I thought they were stacked up to win a lot. They've dismantled in the last number of yeah. years and Epstein is now gone. And, yeah. It, it's still Rizzo and and uh, Bryant still there in, in the Cubs organization organization, but I knew what I was getting into when I got you on this evening. I knew we were going to talk about every single sport, and I know offside kind of uh, where we talk Leafs all the time and talk hockey. But man, it's been we've we've talked about everything, and it's it's mm-hmm. I uh, didn't expect these great stories, but I just uh, thought of oh, it's a lot of fun, man. We're going to chat for about a half hour. And then now we're talking about baseball, basketball yeah. and, and everything else uh, under the sun. But I, I wanted to get into the junior a hockey. I know I, uh, I followed the Olin exports in, in the 1998, they went to the world bank and they won. And is it safe to say the, the Mooseheads really just kind of killed junior a in HRM? Like I know Mooseheads came. I, th- in- I think so. I mean, I don't think, <clears throat> I don't think they came in with the intent, let's kill Junior A. But I think in the marketplace, there's only so much room for so much. And that's basically the best way to answer that. So um, look, I there was a time in Metro Halifax when there was only Junior B in the 1970s. And then Junior B became Junior A and they didn't have a Junior B league. And then they launched the Junior B league, but the Junior B league was nothing like the old Junior B league because it lived in the shadow the junior a league you know what i mean mm. and then so the quebec league comes in the junior a league lives in the shadow of them um so but i i would encourage the junior a league <clears throat> to think outside of the box i can't prove it i can't uh, you've been to sackville for the sackville blazers games of course they get a good thing going there they have a yeah. good thing going at that rank if i mean i would submit to you if that was a junior a team that'd be good enough to survive but they're very, they're an iconic junior B team. The point I'm trying to make is if you put a junior A team somewhere in the HRM in a rink that's small and cozy enough, I'm not certain it wouldn't work. I think it could work, but they've decided to take it outside of the city. That's fine. I, I, I can't find an argument with it because <clears throat> it tried and failed. But I think having it in a big rink that's always empty kind of hurts it. But if you, I mean, I, I don't think Centennial Arena is a proper facility for Junior A, I think, because it's just probably, they probably want something bigger. But I've been to rinks like that, that are Junior A rinks in other parts of the country, and they're jam-packed, and it's a great environment. I've been to rinks in the Ottawa Valley that are just like the Sackville Arena. They're Junior A rinks, and they're packed, and it's a great environment. 
So I, I drive around to some of the arenas in Halifax and I say, I think Junior A could work here, but my opinion doesn't matter. I don't own a team and the people who own teams disagree with me. And so it doesn't matter what I think, but I drive around Halifax and I daydream and I think about things. Do I think a Junior A team could fit and succeed in one of those smaller rinks? Yes, I do. I, I, I do. It works that. in Miramichi. I've yeah. lived in Miramichi for work and yeah. have gone to games Saturday night, 2000 yeah. people and, Pictou County's got about five or five to a thousand. The Apple Dome, um, the list goes on. Yeah. But it, it, it works from the South Shore down to Yarmouth and from Truro, uh, Amherst, all the way up through New, northern New Brunswick. It works. These small little communities. And, you know, Bathurst has their Q team and Moncton has their Q team. And it, it seems like it's working on, you know, it's on like, it's kind of like a branch, like the. Yeah. The big tree is like Bathurst and Moncton. And then you got these branches that are like the Grand Falls team. Who knows? Like, I've wondered that myself. Like, hey, does it, would a junior A team work in Sackville? But they're, they're, yeah. they're they, they, they have such a good thing going with junior B. That's, I mean, I want, I want to, I want to preface this in case someone from Sackville is listening. I'm not saying Sackville should switch to junior A. It's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying I've been to the Sackville Arena, and so have you, where it's been packed in there pretty good for a junior B game. And I'm thinking, even for, even this, high school has been packed too. Yeah, and I was like, this could pass as a junior A environment. So I think it's as much by choice and chance that we don't have junior A here as much as anything else. And and ticket sales got a lot to do with things too. I know, like for sure, I've for talked sure. to, I've talked to people before. We've we're having this conversation, and they didn't they never wanted to pay the money that the Citadels wanted spectators totally. to pay and it's totally agree yeah th th that's a big problem and then even junior a like it's cheaper <laughs> if you were a junior b team let's let's say you know sackville coal harbor um east hands uh you're a junior b team and you want to switch to junior a it's more expensive to play junior a it's more expensive operation it's more expensive for coaching it's more expensive for everything more expensive for travel so easier for me to say that a junior a team could work here Based Absolutely. on the success of some of the junior B teams, because the model for a junior A team is that much more expensive. There's no question. Yeah, and I think the furthest we've got to go is Liverpool, and you know yeah. you've got. We'll do one trip a year, not this year because of COVID. But then I've always thought, like I've gone to Cape Breton to visit her uh, relatives, and I'm like, how come a junior A team isn't in Port Oxbury? That yeah, rings, that, it's, that, it's, that it's a good question. Yeah. That brings it's a, great, it's a great question. Look at that, Liverpool. Liverpool for junior B has got a great thing going they, down they, there. They, and, they, and Bottomley's got the he's got he he's got the formula packed in his back yeah. pocket because he he's with the exports and he's been yeah. through it. So. Who knows? But I, I strongly believe when when the Mooseheads came in '94, I know that the exports stuck around until '98, '99. And look at their roster; they had it was yeah. a far, it was a great farm system for the Mooseheads. They had players yeah. on the exports that went back and forth to the Mooseheads. That's and right. Then, yeah. Um, and then in 2000s, they had the Marauders and uh, Dean, mm -hmm. Dean Dean Hopkins was coaching and. That's right. It, it paved the way for uh, a few people now that are at the U18 level, formerly the mm -hmm. midget AAA level. And uh, it's great to see Tom Lee, uh, former St. Mary's Husky, went through cancer. Good guy. Great guy. And he's uh, now coaching uh, the U18 team in, in Cole Harbor. So it's it's great to see people back. And I just wanted to talk about Bob Boucher. I never got to meet him, but um, mm -hmm. each and each year that uh, – the auction comes up the the, uh, the night that auction items are available to auction. Um, I'm I'm part of it, and uh, 
it's unfortunate this year we also lost Bob Warner. I, I got to meet him quite a bit through uh, different things at the, the Daphne Center. And uh, mm-hmm. just, just talk about those two individuals and, and Bob Boucher uh, for people listening uh, who may want to uh, maybe take part in the next uh, auction that comes up. Just talk about those two guys. Well, I tell you, first of all, with Bob Boucher, he was he was a legend. I mean, no disrespect to Trevor, but I mean, Bob Boucher is probably the most famous, greatest St. Mary's hockey head coach of all time. And uh, he just basically, he went from coaching the St. Mary's hockey team, which was a national powerhouse, to being an assistant coach with the Philadelphia Flyers. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's just that's just unbelievable to have that kind of career arc. Um, enormously successful. I got to meet him later in life. He was a head coach of the, the Moosehead Mounties hockey team um, at um, in, the, in the old Nova Scotia Senior League. And really, really good man. Uh, very kind, always very kind to me. Uh, Bob Warner was just a total gentleman. By the way, I'm just dialing, I'm dialing up Bob Boucher's numbers here. So he's St. Mary's head coach from uh, 19, well, I got from 1968 to 78 here, 79. And then two years in Philadelphia as an assistant. And then he went back to the OHL to be a head coach. I mean, his career was just enormous. Um, like Bob Warner, played for the Maple Leafs, NHL hockey player, total gentleman, good man, good St. Mary's man. Recall seeing him around at football games, at hockey games for years. Just a really good guy. And uh, like I'm a St. Mary's guy. I, I'm proud to be a St. Mary's guy. And I can tell you the best part about being a St. Mary's person is that tradition and that connectivity to those people. Um, They're all my friends and they're all my friends for life. And once you become connected to the folks at St. Mary's, like they're with you through thick and thin, like uh, it's a, it's a real community. And that community spills up beyond the campus. Like, you know, the St. Mary's Huskies and Bob Boucher was coaching were basically the Halifax Huskies. That was a Halifax team that people cheered for. And he rightfully so became an icon in the city for what he accomplished and good on St. Mary's to celebrate him the way they do, because that's exactly the kind of person you should celebrate. No, it, you hit the nail on the head and I, I got to meet him there when I'm, I'm really glad that he was able to see the Daphne center open. And it's unfortunate this year we, we lost him, but I wanted to ask one question I had, I asked a few people this week and did Bobby Orr, ever play with the Boston Bruins at the forum or was he a Blackhawk when, cause I've, I've asked a few people this week and some people have said they've remember Bobby Orr at the forum um, playing against John Beliveau in a Montreal, excuse me, Montreal Canadians exhibition game. Did you go to that game? No, that would be before. That'd be before my time. Oh, John okay. okay. Yeah, John. But if he I wasn't played, sure if you're if, if you were young if enough he, to remember. Or... Yeah, no. If he played for the Boston Bruins against the Montreal Canadiens, uh, it would have been back in the, probably the late '60s. Oh, okay. uh, I don't think it happened in the 1970s. I, I might be wrong on that, but I don't think it happened in the 1970s. But he was uh, he was you know pretty special player, to put it mildly. No, I know a few people have mentioned uh, they weren't sure if he played the Boston uh, Red, excuse me, the Boston uh, Bruins or the the Blackhawks. But my man, this this has been a treat. I knew we were going to be all over the board regards to each each sport uh, that you've covered. But uh, well, we're going to have you on uh, maybe on the one hundredth episode. I, I strongly believe. I look forward to it. I I'll get to the one hundredth episode and we'll have you on and uh, look forward to. Uh, Many more um, CTV uh, 
shows with you on it. And uh, I, I've got to ask, how many uh, more years do you think uh, Steve Murphy's got left in the tank? Oh, a lot of years left. He's not going. Murph's not going anywhere. I'm going to. I'll say that he he's got the, he's got passion for it. He's best broadcaster I know. One of the wow. best guys I know. A good friend of mine, by the way. And uh, I don't think Steve's going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, I'll let I'll let him speak definitively for his timelines, but I I just can't. I can't imagine the place with, without him. Therefore, I can't imagine him ever leaving. So I just assume he'll be there forever. And when, and when you when you come on again, we'll talk about like the two thousands and Pat Connolly. I know we didn't get to talk about him. And I look forward to how, that. He's a good how, man. Yeah. Yes, sir. And how special was that Memorial Cup? Uh, and a lot of other things uh, we, we didn't get to cover. But it's uh, almost ten o'clock here now, Atlantic time, and uh, you, you've got a big day again tomorrow on CTV. Yeah. So I'll, I'll let you go, sir. And okay, buddy. Thank you very much for. Excuse me. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to chat with me this evening. It's my pleasure. I'm flattered that you asked.